One of the things I like about this episode is it shows how far Barkley has come, both in the way he takes care of himself and how others deal with him. I'm going to get a little personal in this rumination. Not yet, I'm just warning you. So if anybody doesn't want to hear about me or my life, this would be a good time to say, screw this mess and peace out. I do like, though, they show it very quickly and efficiently right at the beginning. They're dealing with a problem, and Barkley, unbidden, just out of nowhere, volunteers, oh, I've, I've got an idea for that. He's still a little nervous, because he should be. He still has a few anxiety problems, because those don't just go away. But for the most part, he's still better. He has gotten better. And this is, like I said, one of the things I like about Barkley. He has a pretty cohesive character arc across Star Trek, uh, from TNG over into Voyager. It's a nice step. And, of course, this episode also has O'Brien, so two of my favorite Star Trek characters in together. I mean, how could I not like this episode, right? Even though it doesn't make sense. So, <clears throat> so then we get to the point where he has to beam over, and they mention this is going to be a long transport. And, of course, any of us can immediately understand that he doesn't want to beam over. We don't understand why yet, but he's making it pretty apparent. So he doesn't like to beam, and he doesn't, you know, this is going to be an unpleasant beam. And one of the things I find interesting is we've only really seen two other people have a dislike of beaming. Not counting the Trill situation, which was ejected immediately after that episode. McCoy and Pulaski. But in both cases, it was a dislike of it, not a legitimate fear or worry of it. Brennan Braga wrote this episode, and it shows, in both good and bad ways, but he says he wrote it from very personal experience, which I want you to keep that in mind, okay? I'll, I'll come back around that. So, Barkley is just... And yet, I have to admit, this is the first point at which the episode loses me. Not because he's afraid of transporting, that makes perfect sense, but the fact that nobody knew about this, that this has never come up. He's been assigned to the Enterprise D how many years now? And he's a lieutenant. It's not like he hasn't been in Starfleet for... Um, a long time at this point, and yet he somehow avoided transporters this whole time. His only explanation is, oh, I've logged a lot of flight hours. Yeah, that's nice. How about when you can't? Or how about when normal things come up? Do you just always come up with an excuse? Like, it's not... I'm, I'm sorry. The parallel here is obviously to flying. But this is closer to not wanting to drive by real life's perspectives because of how commonplace it is. And instead insisting, oh, no, I'll walk. Whatever. I do like something, though. So, he's, he's, you can see him just freaking out and freaking out, and he's getting sweaty, and he's just, oh, God, what do I do? And finally says, nope, I, I can't, I can't, I, I can't do this. Now, you don't have to answer this question, but how many of you out there have ever basically been unable to do something because of fear or anxiety? It doesn't have to be a big thing. You're getting on a ride at an amusement park, and you look down and you see just how far down that goes. And you can't bring yourself to do it. And you, you freak out and you say, no, 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 I can't do it, I can't do it. Now, of those of you who answered yes to that, how many of you have felt that really dark, bitter shame about it? You were so embarrassed, and everyone got to see you. Oh, my God, they've got to think you're so stupid. I mean, I just it's just a simple slide, and like 15 people went up before me, and there's no fear or worry, and I know that I just can't do it. God, please. 
And they've all got to be staring at you, right? And accusing you and judging you. Once upon a time, this was quite a while ago, early high school years for me, I was applying to be a part of a play. I don't remember the name of the play. Please forgive me. It was a murder mystery play. And I was in the casting, and basically there was the casting director, and then there was the three of us. And we were all just bouncing off each other, changing roles. And it got to the point where I had to do my lines, and I completely lost it. I was so anxious, I was so afraid of tripping up or screwing up that I couldn't do it. I couldn't perform. Yeah, go ahead, make the joke. I couldn't do the role in front of just <laughs> like three other people, right? Mm. And God, I was so humiliated and so embarrassed. I even ran away. That is to say, I, I remember there's a set of doors, and I just went to the doors, and I took a few seconds to collect myself. Whoops. Uh, and then suddenly everything got a lot brighter. There we go. Sorry. <laughs> it took a few seconds to go collect myself. Now, here's the funny part. That was humiliating and embarrassing and just, oh, my God. And, and I was just, it was just a panic attack. And it was just anxiety, nothing else. I know that probably sounds funny saying that now, but back when I was, you know, 14, I had a lot harder time getting in front of a crowd. I had to learn that skill. And I'm mentioning this story on purpose because when I finally got my nerve back together and walked back outside, they were still right there. And there was no laughing. There was no sneering or jiding. There was no sarcastic remarks. They acted like nothing happened. And they just said, you ready to start again? And I did. And I said the lines. Now, funnily enough, I didn't get an acting role in that particular play, although I did end up getting a role in the lighting booth. I was the lighting director, actually. So, you know, setting up all the specific lights and uh, which ones we want where for which scenes, setting up the programs, you know, you know, these three lights on and these five lights off or program A, that kind of thing. It was a very fun, very interesting experience. But all of that is to get across the point that I will never forget what it felt like for people to just be normal when I came back from that. Not to try and be over-supportive, and not to be a dick, but instead just because they were, you know, supportive, just because they were like, you know, you ready? You okay? Just because of that simple act of caring helped me tremendously. And I've never forgotten that incident. And I've tried to be the same way towards other people basically ever since. And that's what I really love about this episode. There are plenty of logical flaws in it, including the big one, which I won't mention until the very end. And it's not a really big, high sci-fi concept piece. And it's a character piece for a guest star. This is a Barkley episode. And, of course, it's Dwight Schultz, so he manages to nail it. And I love Barkley as a character. But what really elevates this, this, is, this might actually be my favorite Barkley episode overall. And it's because of the fact that everyone else has gotten to the point where they now are supportive of him. Not over-supportive, just supportive. That right blend that I just mentioned. And it's consistent. O'Brien's got his back. LaForge is understanding and looks after him, sends Troy after him, who is also concerned about him. She only pulls rank on him once, and that's just because of military affairs. You know, we can't have an officer who's losing it on duty. Dr. Crusher is thorough in her investigation. When he calls a meeting of the senior staff, they pay attention and listen and treat him as if he is saying something serious, like he's worth their time because he is. My favorite one, though, is actually a very minor one. 
he finally masters his emotions and beams over to the Oberth class. I forget the name of the ship, forgive me. And when he's over there, Riker comes in, he's t he gives quick orders, and then he turns to him and says, Hey, I'm glad to have you with us. Riker, the guy who was the biggest bully towards Barkley way back in his first episode. It's just nice to see that. It's just wholesome, you know? And it's also nice because, as I mentioned, that is character growth. That is a character arc. Not just for him in his own self-confidence, but for them and how they treat him. He has actually become part of the family. And that's awesome. I just wanted to comment on that really quick. Please forgive me for delving into the personal story to help explain that. Doesn't work, by the way. I'm just going to spoil that for you. <laughs> So then O'Brien relates his spider story. This is another thing. I've noticed a lot of people uh, have what I like to call irrational fear, something that there's no real reason to be afraid of it. It just triggers something in you, and it kind of starts to take over your brain. I'm sure some of you understand the concept personally, understand the concept of irrational fears. It's even worse when you know it's there, and you just can't do anything about it, <clears throat> hence an actual phobia. What's interesting, though, is it adds a little bit of relatability to it. And again, it helps to connect O'Brien to Barclay. I want you to keep that in mind, because there's another touch I want to mention on later. So this is the very first time we get to see what it looks like to be beamed, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. From everything we understand of how beaming works, and lots of people, including technically adept people, have spent a lot of time and effort designing exactly how the transporters work. And by all accounts, the moment the beaming process starts to the moment the beaming process stops, you should have no cognizance of those events. It should be in and out, like a blink, basically, by all that we understand. Instead, we, he's fully aware and capable and can move while being beamed. That makes so little sense. It actually kind of approaches the whole accelerating to infinity thing. <laughs> Look, I, I love this episode, Braga, but what in the world? Anyways, so, they, they go through, and of course it, we see a, a thing. Get back to that. So... There's this bit where he asks LaForge, does anything happen to you during transport? And LaForge says, no, very casually. Just funny, it's only been a few episodes since the last phase. Anyways. <clears throat> now, Barkley finally capitulates. And have you ever had something that bothers you and you feel silly to bring it up to your friends or family or coworkers? I know what that feels like. Oh, I just need to put up with it. Or it's just me, or maybe I'm just seeing things, or maybe I'm just feeling things, or maybe there's nothing there. Let me go ahead and give a little piece of advice. Be open about it. Communicate about it. Trust me. Experience has taught me many times that 99% of the time, it's going to help. If there is an issue, at the very least, it's going to resolve it quicker. Right? Now, I bring this up because Barkley seems to still be learning this lesson. But when he finally does open up to LaForge, LaForge immediately says... Let's go check this out right now. Let's do this. They tre he treats him seriously. Now, that makes perfect sense to me for three reasons. One, because he's his friend. And Jordy obviously does care about Barclay, especially at this point in the show. Two, because he's a professional. 
another engineer is reporting something unusual. Ergo, this is something that needs to be looked into. And point three, this is Star Trek. And I think I've kind of pointed this out before, especially by the time we hit this. Season six of TNG, weird stuff just kind of happens in Star Trek. This was true in TOS as well, it's worth noting. So when something weird happens, you don't get that, oh, we can just dismiss it excuse that we can get another fiction because weird stuff is normal in Star Trek and therefore should basically always be looked into. Thankfully, they do kind of avoid that in the later era of TNG, so that's nice. But again, it's nice to see Geordi take it seriously. So they go check it out. They start looking over the pad. They say the other pad is fine. I have no idea how they checked it. <laughs> they go over their own teleporter pad with a fine-tooth comb, metaphorically speaking, and then they just kind of say that they checked the other pad, the one on the Oberth, you know, the one that they're using to tie in the things together. And given what we find out in the end, it's pretty clear that if they had checked the other pad, they would have solved the episode a lot earlier. Funny how that works out. What? Even an episode I love, I'm still going to put up the flaws in it. That's how that works. So, Barkley talks about it. He talks about how terrifying it must be, how incredibly precise transporting has to be to operate correctly. And he's right. Think about how many pieces of your body it's building you down into and then pulling you back into. And let's ignore the whole transporting kills people. Let's just throw that out the window. Can we just do that real quick? <laughs> Assuming it works as presented and intended by the creators. It's actually moving the real you rather than destroying you and creating a new you. Just assume that for a second. In so doing, ergo, that has to be a ridiculously precise operation. I'm not going to bring up Enterprise. I'm not going to bring up Enterprise. But I bring this up because, again, it goes back to the analogy of the airplane. So I mentioned that Braga did this from personal experience. Braga, at least at the time of writing this, had a fear of flying, which is actually a semi-common fear. It is also, as weird as this may sound, a fairly irrational fear, at least at this point in the modern era, especially when this was done, because flying is actually extremely safe. Now, this is one of those really weird things in real life, because, well, flying is extremely dangerous. That's why it's so safe. Now, if you don't understand, let me try that again. It is so easy for so many things to go wrong that many, many, many checks and balances exist to make sure that flight happens in a very precise and, and controlled way. And there are many redundancies and backups in place to make sure that if something does go wrong, that it will not be a catastrophic thing going wrong. There have been flight accidents, but they are the exception, not the rule. And it is specifically because of how dangerous flying is that it is so carefully moderated. This is basically the exact same thing that happens with the transporter. It is incredibly dangerous to transport someone. That's why, as O'Brien so accurately points out, they have three backups just for the pattern, uh, I forget what, for the thing that scans. Three full backups for that. Because that makes perfect sense. Now I know what you're thinking, why is that a weird thing about real life? Well, driving's pretty dangerous, too, but that's completely unregulated. But I don't want to get into any, like, real-life topics that don't have to do with the show. I just wanted to parallel that, because this actually is a pretty good parallel for flying. So that brings us to him. <laughs> and this is something I've been wanting to comment on for a long time. A lot of people like to say that Star Trek predicted things, like the iPad or... I don't know what else off the top of my head. But there's one thing I can say with pretty high accuracy that Star Trek successfully predicted. Bad medical diagnoses on the internet. 
because O'Brien, O'Brien, excuse me, Barkley goes into his room and says, okay, tell me the symptoms. And he's just sitting there like, okay, so heartbeat, yeah, yeah. Dehydrated, yep, yep, okay. Squint, loss of eyesight, yep, squint, squint, squint. And of course, you know, and, and he's just like, oh my God, I've got this ancient disease that no one's ever heard of. That's to the point of being a joke nowadays. You can find regular memes about how terrible internet diagnoses are, right? I just think that one's kind of funny. Moving on. <clears throat> so, he's freaking out. Jordy checks up on him. I hate to keep pointing that out, but it is a recurring thing throughout the entire episode that these people actually support him. And it's awesome, and it's wholesome, and by God, it needs to be mentioned more, because we need more of that in life, I think. You know? Now, Barkley... <laughs> There's actually this pretty good scene. Uh, so he's trying to sleep. He's trying to sleep, and he's doing all these things to try to relax. And by God, have I been there. I actually have trouble sleeping. I have since I was a child. It's a pretty regular thing that I've kind of learned to live with. Uh, nowadays, I literally take medication every single night just to be able to sleep at all. Uh, and I don't get all that much sleep. It's, it's, it's what it is, right? It's something I've gotten used to. It's part of why I try to take a nap every day while streaming, because I kind of have to. But <clears throat> don't they have the medical technology to help you sleep in the 21st century? Like, isn't that a thing? Can't he just say, Doctor, I'm having trouble sleeping. Oh, yeah, sure. Instead, he tries all these steps. I'm, I don't blame him, per se. He probably didn't want to be a bother. It's just, come on. Surely that would be a relatively easy thing to do. But then, of course, he sees the thing, and he goes to O'Brien. And this is probably one of the... I'd say the second best scenes in, in the episode. Because it's two, my two favorite characters in all of Star Trek. Really, O'Brien and Barkley. Acting off of each other. And the two actors are great actors. And there's something wonderfully human about it. Because Barkley is like trying to be like, No, no, we have to do this. This, this, this is an order. And they had to change O'Brien's rank pip just to show for this scene. Because it was actually a lieutenant rank he was wearing before this. If you ever look up on Memory Alpha's wiki, there's an entire page about the inconsistency in O'Brien's rank because they got it that wrong that often in TNG. It wasn't until DS9 that it finally frickin' codified. Anyways. <clears throat> so, you know, it's, it, I've got to pull rank. And, and finally, O'Brien, very calmly, you know, he's not insulted, he's not upset, he just says, you know, you forgot your tricorder. And Barkley's like, and then Barkley drops the, the facade and drops the, the, the walls and just says very openly and very honestly, either there's something in there or I'm crazy and I need to know. Can't you understand that? And O'Brien says, yeah, of course I can. And there's just something wonderfully human about that brief connection there. So Barkley comes out and calls a staff meeting. When I first saw this, you know what I was predicting? Oh, yeah, sure, this is going to be another Cassandra Truth situation. Nobody's going to believe crazy Barkley. No, that doesn't what happened at all. They'll take it very seriously. They, they are listening. And again, this makes perfect sense for the three reasons I mentioned earlier when I was referencing LaForge as a friend, as an officer, and because this is Star Trek. So Picard, the, I remind you, this is the middle of the night. Picard says, yeah, we're dealing with this. We're going up. We're, we're pushing up security. We're going to get you scanned, and we're going to take those transporters offline until we fix this. We're dealing with this. Speaking personally, 
there is very little as comforting as knowing other people take you seriously and value your opinion when you're having something like an anxiety attack. So that really made me smile to see that scene. Yeah, I'm actually legitimately tearing up a little bit. Holy crap. I love human moments. It's probably obvious. So, <clears throat> they have the meeting. Uh, they start to figure out what's going on. They test the, the capsule. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. What happens is they test the arm, and they find that, oh, there really is something there. And she puts the armband on him, which is useless. Riker comes in, and Barkley's like, I'd like to look into this, please. And Riker says, you got it. Take precautions. Yes, yes, of course, sir. So they beam it in. <laughs> microbes, right? You know, they deal with all of that. And then they come up with their solution for dealing with it. Oh, and of course, Barclay gets passed down. They finally see the blue. Now, this is kind of interesting because this is probably one of the better points of the episode. The construction of the episode is such that there are two mysteries. The obvious mystery and then the mystery that's intersecting that. The obvious mystery is what's going on with the microbes and what happened to the, the other ship, right? But see, the thing is, the real, the other mystery, the second mystery, is what the heck happened to the crew. Now, this is not a very well-constructed episode. There are issues with its narrative, which I've already pointed out several, including the fact that no one seems to bring up where the heck the crew went, which is never even really mentioned, and the fact that the crew, when they're in the data stream, look like strange worm things, which is probably one of the biggest flaws of the episode, because there's no explanation ever given for any reason whatsoever at all for the fact that they all look like worm things. Now, the reason is because if they looked like people, mystery would be solved much earlier on. I think there's other ways they could have done that and make it make sense. I just point it out because it's one of the bigger gaping flaws in the episode. But I will give the episode and Braga credit on this point. The second mystery is only solved because the first mystery is solved. Because as they're solving the first mystery, Barclay comes to the realization, which he then exposits to the crew and to the audience. They were, the other crew was solving the same mystery. They just failed at it. So that's what happened to the crew, and thus the second mystery is solved. Which is a nice conclusion point. It's just I wish that the construction up to that point had worked a little bit better. I like that bit. 92% increase in mass. Notice that they call for security, which is there very quickly, and put up a force field. Holy crap. Weird competency in this episode. So then the episode ends, and there's a tarantula, which I actually cut off the episode before it happened, because I don't like spiders. Overall, a flawed but incredibly human episode with great character moments and just just wonderful connections between people. I really like this one, if it's not obvious. I hope you've liked my thoughts on it and my sharings on it. I'll see you next time, guys.